0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 3 this morning as we're going through the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 3. I always like it when football season's in session because everybody represents. You know, you kind of know who the Bronco fans are. and Seems like Steeler fans are resilient. There's always... Some Steelers stuff going on, and those type of things. So, and then there's others of you that are like, I could care less about football. You'll you'll never see me in a football jersey. So, we're captivated by stories of kings. There was a king who lived in the far east in ancient times, and he had a daughter who was extremely beautiful. Everybody commented on her beauty, but what also resulted is she became very prideful and she became very arrogant to the point where all of these guys that wanted to marry her, she always felt that she was above them. So the king arranged this event at his palace to, to bring in all these potential suitors. You had other kings and, that were single and, and princes, and she went one by one and found weaknesses in them. But then she also went on to, to make fun of them it, it, publicly in this in this gathering, and especially on this one young king, and and he had this big beard. Maybe he was a hipster, but he had this big big beard that was coming down. And she called him King Grizz and began to make fun of of his beard. Her father was so embarrassed at the end of this event. He said, "Look, I've had it. And the next guy that comes into this palace, you're going to marry no matter what. You, I don't I don't care anymore." So a couple days later, here comes this young man, and he's playing a fiddle. He's playing the violin and singing. He asked if he could come in uh, to, to the palace, and sure enough, he plays and sings and does a great job, but he's also extremely poor. You could tell by his clothes and even his face, some, some dirt on his face and hands. The king looks at his daughter, and he says, that's your new husband. That's who you're marrying. You're marrying this guy. I meant what I said, and you need, to, you need to go with him. You need to go journey with your, your husband. So here she is, leaves the palace, heading out, and they get into the forest, into the woods, and she asks her new husband, who owns these, these woods? And he says, oh, King Grizz, King Grizzly owns this, these woods. And, and all of a sudden, all of the remorse of her pride and arrogance is starting to, to hit her. They travel into the meadows. Who owns this meadows? Well, of course, it's King Grizz. How about the noble city, this big city? He owns that as well travel a little further and they get to this hut with a dirt floor she's like whose dirt hole is this who who lives here and the fiddler says well i live here and this is your new home this is our our home as as husband and wife she didn't know how to do things like start a fire cook a meal those basic things and after a couple of days of living in this hut they're running out of food and he says look we have to do something i'm going to have to go pursue work you're going to have to go pursue work as well and and learn how to make things and sew things and create things. And and she was pushed in a direction that she never thought imaginable or, or possible. So she got some goods together to sell at the market. It was her first day at the market. She was really embarrassed. What if someone recognizes her? What if her father recognizes her? She's got her booth. And then here comes this soldier on his horse, this drunken soldier, and he just knocks over her booth, and her, her goods go all over this market. She runs home and, and tells her, her husband, and, and her husband says, you know what, Let, let's see if you can get a job with one of the kings in his palace helping in, in the kitchen. At least it'll be consistent, and we'll know that, that we'll, we'll have food. And so sure enough, she's, she's working now in this king's palace, a, a different king than her dad, And on a particular day, she looks down and she sees the king's son. And the the king's son is getting ready to go to an event where he's going to choose his bride. And once again, the waves of of regret come come over her. And all of a sudden, the king's son comes into the kitchen and looks at her and says, You are so beautiful. I want to dance with you tonight. And she's torn because she's married to the fiddler, but now she's getting attention from the king's son. She chooses to dance with them. And the king's son whispers in her ear and he says, you know what, I'm King Grizz. And then he also says, I'm also the fiddler. I'm your husband. And I did this all intentionally to humble your heart. So he knew what the king had said, her father had said, and he came in two days later in a disguise as a fiddler so that he could marry the daughter, took her to this hut. He was the soldier on the horse that destroyed all, all all of her goods. Now, that story this morning doesn't have a whole lot to do with our message. (laughs) But the reason that I told you it is because we all love a story about a king, don't we? And there is an aspect to King Grizz's leadership that we appreciate, that that moves us. And this morning, we're going to look at Jesus, the king. The reality that he's the king and how he leads in our lives. And he's the ultimate king that is present with us this morning. So would you pray with me and let's prepare our hearts. God, we thank you so much for sending your son. That he would leave his throne. The ultimate servant leader. To captivate our hearts. To be the authority. And as we look through your word this morning, May we see Jesus as our king in a greater way. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. In Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 3, And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Second time that Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum. The first time, he cast out a man that had a demon. He was demon-possessed. Jesus cast out the demon. Comes into the synagogue again. The discussion that's happening from the end of chapter 1 is the Sabbath. And Jesus declared that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Flows right into chapter 3. Or that's the discussion at the end of chapter 2, excuse me. And that flows right into to chapter 3. So here's a man that comes to the Sabbath and his hand is withered. The scribes, the Pharisees, they're closely watching Jesus, whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. We have to understand that they believed that to hold to the Sabbath day, the day of rest, that you couldn't heal anyone. It was to the point where if you had a cut and you were bleeding, you could stop the bleeding, but to put ointment on it so that it would get better was work. So to heal on the Sabbath day was work and a violation of the Sabbath. What's interesting about these scribes and Pharisees is they're watching Jesus for the wrong reason. Their eyes are on Jesus so that they might accuse him, so that they might do away with him. And then they've lost a heart for the man with the withered hand. The man with the withered hand is just an opportunity, fuel on the fire, if you would, for them to get what they want, but they have no concern for him, no love for the, the man with the withered hand. And Jesus, in verse 3, and he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Christ calls attention to the man with the withered hand. Now if you have something about your physical appearance that stands out to not be quite normal, we don't like to be drawn out and drawn attention to to with that. By the way, what's normal anyway? But put yourself in the shoes of the man with the withered hand. He from birth he's got this this hand that's withered that doesn't work. I had a friend in high school and he was born with a really small hand. So so it never, just the way that God created him and made him. And he, he was amazing at the guitar, really gifted at the guitar and singing. But he got really good at hiding that small hand, that baby hand that God had given to him. He, he would walk through the hall like this with his hand in his pocket because he didn't want people to draw attention to to his hand. He, he had this big flannel that he'd wear and he'd put his hand in his pocket because if his hand was out, people would tend to, to stare at his hand. And I'm sure it was the same way for this man with with his withered hand. Service is happening in the synagogue, teachings taking place, prayers, and all of a sudden Jesus is like you. You with the withered hand step forward. Christ has a way of drawing out our weaknesses, doesn't he? Calling out our weaknesses. So uncomfortable. Lord, I don't want to acknowledge this about myself. Even more so, I don't want others to realize the part of me that's broken, the part of me that's withered. Jesus does this in our lives and for this man because he cares about us, because he wants to heal us. He wants to bring life where there's death, but first he exposes it. First he brings it out into the light and brings attention upon it so that he can work in that area. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. That's a good question, isn't it? Is it lawful to do good? on the Sabbath day? To heal on the Sabbath day? One quote reads this way, good omitted is evil committed. Good omitted is evil committed. So every day is a good day to serve the Lord and to do good. Amen? Amen. So every day. So how twisted is this that the Sabbath has now become a day where you can't do good? The Sabbath has become a day where you can't heal because it has been constituted as work. As we study the Gospels and we look at the scribes and the Pharisees, we need to be careful that we don't fall into some of the same things that they did. Because that's the tendency of religion apart from Christ. You know, religion, going to church, reading your Bible. These guys went to church. They read the Old Testament. They believed in the one true God. But yet, They had missed Christ. They're rejecting Christ. They're not walking in relationship with Christ. In verse 5, And when he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. When we think of the righteous anger of Christ, we oftentimes think of Christ in the temple, when he cleansed the temple on two occasions. But he's also angry here. And he does it with a look. He gives a look He looked at them with anger. Now, anger isn't sin. There is righteous anger. Oftentimes we do sin in our anger, but there's certain things that should make us angry, that should stir our hearts. And what was this like? What would that look like to have God in human flesh looking at you with clear anger in his countenance? Sometimes this is the most intimidating form of anger, isn't it? It's one thing if someone yells at you, and it's another if they just give you the look. You know, like, uh, <laughs> I'm going to get out of here as, as soon as possible, right? Why is Christ angry? Why is he grieved? It, it's not an anger that is out of control. It's under self-control. But he's grieved because of the hardness of their hearts. Their hearts have gotten so hard that they didn't weren't even open to the possibility of, of doing good upon the sabbath day. Goes on to say, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, stretch out your hand. Jesus is king, the king. Three things this morning first is he's king in his powerful proclamation. Looks at this place that is broken, that doesn't work, that's withered and says, "I want you to stretch forth your hand." Christ speaks life into areas that are completely dead. That's salvation. That's the work of being born again. That's the work that he continues to do in our lives to allow us to have victory over sin. As the king, he's able to do things that only Jesus can do. Stretch forth your hand. How does this man respond? And he stretched it out, and his hands were restored as the other. He has an opportunity to walk in faith. Jesus could have looked at him and said, hey, your hand's healed. Sweet, it's healed. But instead, God gives this promise, gives this command, this powerful proclamation, and he has to choose whether he's going to attempt to stretch out his hand. Maybe some of the thoughts he was having is, is this another cruel joke? I've been picked on my whole life. You know my hand doesn't work. You know it's, it's withered. You've drawn attention to me in front of everybody that's in this worship service. And now I've got to stretch forth my hand. But he chooses in faith. He looks into the eyes of Christ and goes, this is someone that I can trust. I can believe his word. I can believe his command. So even though it was impossible, he tried to stretch forth his hand. And as he did it, his hand was restored. It was no longer withered. This is oftentimes how God works in our lives. We may be in a season of depression, of worry and anxiety. We're going through our days with a dark cloud over us. What's the command that God gives to us? What's his powerful proclamation? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And we have a choice to go, God, my soul's withered. I don't feel like rejoicing. I'm having a terrible night. I'm having a terrible week. Sometimes we go, I'm having a terrible life. I just am not in the place that I want to rejoice. Or we can go, that is the proclamation of my king. So I'm choosing to rejoice in the Lord because who he is. And many times, as we get our eyes off ourselves, we begin to rejoice in God. God does a miracle in our soul, doesn't he? Maybe it happened this morning as you began to worship and you began to sing to the Lord. Maybe for some reason you didn't really feel like being here this morning. Didn't really feel like singing. But as the worship team played, your attention got upon the Lord and you rejoiced in God and you felt your soul being ministered to by the Lord. Powerful proclamation that Christ gives to us as husbands is love your wives as Christ loves the church. That's the most difficult challenge, not because of who our wives are, but because of the standard. Saying love as Christ loves the church. We can easily look at that and go, there is no way that I'm ever going to be able to love my wife as Christ loves the church. Or we can say that's the command of God, so I'm going to step out into that by faith and trust that God's commandments are God's enablements, that he's going to do something supernatural in me as I attempt to, to walk in his word. Wives, you're called to submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Yes, I said that out loud in church. I know it's not cultural. You're going, what kind of church am I in? There's no way I'm going to submit to my husband. If God knew my husband, he would have never wrote that down. (laughs) If I follow his leadership, all bets are off in our marriage and our family. You don't even want to know what he's going to do with the finances. God's saying, I've made a proclamation. I'm your king and this is my command. And you choose to step out in faith. Begin to respect your husband and watch God work in the supernatural. There's a struggle with sin that we find ourselves falling to over and over again. And Romans 6 tells us to reckon the old man dead, that it's been crucified with Christ. And we choose to now step out in faith going, I don't feel like I have any victory in this area. I feel like I'm completely defeated and there's no hope of change, but I'm believing the word of God. Believing that he's able to do the impossible as I step into obedience. Clark, a Bible commentator, put it this way. Faith discards apparent impossibilities where there is a command and a promise. The effort to believe is often the faith by which the soul is healed. I like that. That ministers to me. Faith disregards the apparent impossibilities. In verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So, it is breaking the Sabbath day to attempt to heal somebody, but plotting murder, you can do that on the Sabbath. No problems. That sounds like a lot of work, doesn't it? I mean, how many of you have plotted murder? Hopefully, none. You've got to put a lot of thought into how you're going to get away with killing somebody, especially someone like Jesus, who the attention of the whole nation is upon. These guys have really missed it. They go to the Herodians. The Herodians were, were Jews that had political power, the upper class, and supported Herod. Rome is in power. And then the, the Israelites had three factions that were very influential, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Herodians. So they immediately go to those that are involved in politics in order that they might kill Jesus, that they might destroy Jesus. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to, to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Iduma, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. Notice Jesus withdrew from the synagogue. Why? Because he knows where he's not welcome. He's a gentleman. He's saying, you guys don't want me here, so I'm going to withdraw. One of the things that concerns me most about our country and our culture is we've communicated to Christ, we don't want you to be part of our culture. So what's he going to do? He's going to withdraw until we let him know, we want you to be a part of our lives. We want you to be a part of our culture. We want you to take control of, of everything that we do. As he withdraws, he goes by the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and people come from all around the region. Judea and Jerusalem is southern Israel. Jesus is in The Galilee region. Tyre and Sidon, if you look at a map in the back of your Bible, is modern-day Syria and Lebanon north. So people are coming from up north beyond the Galilee region to come in. We've got beyond the Jordan listed here. And that's what we know today as the country of Jordan. So this whole region around Israel is coming to Jesus because they've heard of the things that Christ was doing. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush crush him. This is how many people are around Christ and pressing into Christ He's saying, I need a a boat right here in case they're, they're pressing me to the point where I'm going to get crushed. One of the things we find in Mark's gospel, even more so than the others, is how chaotic the ministry of Christ was. How much was happening. How many people were really moved I mean, try to put yourself in the place of the disciples as all of this was happening. Verse 10 For he healed many, so that as many had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. They brought their afflictions to Christ. What are the things that are afflicting us? Bring it to Christ. And the unclean spirit whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, you are the son of God. So these demons would cry out everywhere Jesus went, declaring that he was the son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should make, should not make him known. This displays Christ's power, says, no, you guys need to be quiet. And they were quiet. He has authority over this demonic realm. Why did Jesus not want these demons going around saying that he was the son of God? Because it's the right information, but it's coming from the wrong source. These guys don't have a relationship with Christ, a respect for Christ. He says, nope, you're not the ones to get this message out. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. This is when Jesus appoints the disciples. As king, we see his powerful proclamation, stretch forth your hand but we also see his divine selection. saying These are the 12 guys that I'm calling to myself that I want to be disciples. This is a very important moment in the ministry of Christ because these men would carry on the ministry. These are the guys that Jesus passes the baton to that are used by the Lord to birth the church in the book of Acts. We know from Luke's gospel that Jesus stayed up all night in prayer before he made this choice. Seeking God's guidance, the Father's guidance. Probably also wrestling with, man, I've got to choose Judas, which means I'm going to die. I'm choosing my death. He called them to himself, those that he wanted. They respond to Christ's call and they came. Church, this is when our Christian life gets exciting. We understand that Jesus is calling us to himself to spend time with him to know him to walk with him in relationship And we respond We, We come to that mountain with the Lord Then he appointed 12 So he's making it very clear that these 12 are his disciples up until this point This 12 has not been appointed that they might be with him And that he might send them out to preach Notice the order First, these guys are going to be with Christ 24-7, following Christ, growing in relationship, learning by example. Then they're going to be sent out to preach, and that's always the order in our lives. If we want to be used by the Lord, we first have to spend time with the Lord continually. So we're spending time with Christ, and he's equipping us then to send us out to share his message. Both are important to keep in view. Sometimes we can get this idea of our relationship with Christ that it, it's just for me. Like like I'm here at church this morning just for me. I need to be encouraged. I need to grow Christ. I need to spend time with Christ. And that's great and that's true. But God's filling us up so he can send us out. We're spending time with him so that we can take his message out, out to others. So it, it's us and Jesus for the purpose of reaching others and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons christ gives them this power then we have the list of their names starting with simon simon to whom he gave the name peter as we look at christ's selection of his 12 i don't think it's who we would choose as disciples who we would choose to birth the church who we would choose to become the apostles Begins with Simon, who Jesus changed his name to Peter. He's a fisherman. Simon means small stone or shifting sand. That was his given name, but God changed his name to Peter, which means rock. Goes from shifting sand to having great stability, and we see that transformational work in Peter's life as he followed Christ. He's back and forth, he's proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And the next thing we know, he's rebuking Christ for speaking of suffering and going to the cross. As the Holy Spirit comes into Peter, there's a great transformation that takes place. And he becomes that rock. But probably Peter, of everything you know about Peter, would you choose him to be a disciple? But Jesus chose him. Goes on, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Borgies, that is, sons of thunder. Jesus had a sense of humor. He's like, these guys are stinking firecrackers. They got tempers that won't stop, these two brothers. So I'm just going to call them sons of thunder. We see this in Luke, Luke's gospel. Jesus is not welcomed into a Samaritan village. So these two brothers, James and John, John goes on to write the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation. We know much about John. But at this point, in John's maturity, gets with his brother and says, you know what? We heard that Elijah called down fire from heaven. Would you like us to do that on this village? What are they saying? God, we want you to just fry their faces off and we'll be the ones that ask for the fire. Jesus then gives them the nickname Sons of Thunder. You know, you guys are just full of anger and wanting to bring judgment upon others. But as we look at the life of John over time, as he walks with Jesus, he became the apostle of love. He writes more about love than anyone else. When you read his epistles, he's saying love one another. That's the greatest greatest priority. Also fishermen, James and John, Andrew's the brother of Peter. We see Andrew a few times in the Gospels, but not near as much as Peter. Then to Philip and Bartholomew. Bartholomew is also Nathanael, when you see Nathanael in the Gospels. What I'd like you to realize, as Jesus calls these 12 disciples and apostles, he doesn't use them all the same way. Peter and John are out in the forefront. We see them used much more in a, in a public way. But there's some of these disciples that we don't know anything of their ministry. But it's not any less significant to the Lord. We're a body We have a lot of different callings and functions inside of the body of Christ. Not everybody's going to be a Peter. Not everybody's going to be a John. If everybody was a Peter and everybody was a John, then we would have a very weak body. And even in the disciples, we see that. Matthew is also Levi, the tax collector. We saw his calling when God called him last week. And then Thomas was the realist and the doubter. He's the one that doubted the resurrection of Christ. He was the one when Jesus said, let's go to Jerusalem. Thomas is like, not looking good down there. But we're willing to go there and die with you. you know? He's the Eeyore of the New Testament. You know people like that. It doesn't matter what you say. They're going to give you the pessimistic view. Oh, we're going to die today. Let's go ahead and go to church. I'm sure we're going to die there today. You know, We may not have wanted Thomas on our team, but Jesus did. Jesus had the patience to to work with him and meet him in in that place. James, the son of Alphaeus, a second James. We don't know much about him. Thaddeus and Simon, the Canaanite. Simon, we know, in Acts 1, verse 13, was a zealot, meaning that he was a political fanatic that was trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. Now, how in the world did Simon, the zealot, And Matthew, the Jewish man working for the Roman Empire as a tax collector, ever get along and spend time together. Apart from Christ, these guys would be absolute enemies, even to the point where Simon the Zealot, Simon the Canaanite, would try to kill a guy like Matthew. That's the beauty of Christ. I'm sure there's people here this morning... That you may be, before you knew Christ as your Savior, would never get along with, never associate with, never spend time with. You have opposing views apart from the Lord. But as we follow Christ, he brings us together as the family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Judas is the last listed. Christ, in choosing Judas, knew that Judas would betray him, and is choosing his death. Choosing to lay down his life. What I want you to see in Christ choosing these 12. Is consistent with God's character throughout all of scripture. And church history. That God chooses the weak and the foolish. To confound the wise. What if God would have chosen. 12 rock stars that are phenomenal people. That had great intellect. Great experience. Phenomenal. We'd go well. I'm happy for the disciples, but God could never use me. Do you notice what is missing from this group? There's not one that's a scribe. There's not one that's a Pharisee. There's not one that's from the seminary. Jesus got normal guys that were available to follow him to show us that he uses the weak and the foolish. How many times do we believe the lie, well, God can't use me because of this weakness in my life? And that's the exact person that he's choosing that will follow him because the glory goes to the Lord. I feel that my life is this way. I've never been to seminary. I don't have a bachelor's degree. I've got a two-year degree, associate's degree from a Bible college that's non-accredited. Not too impressive, right? I didn't learn how to read until the summer going into fourth grade. I had a really hard time learning how to read growing up. And when I say I learned how to read, I learned how to sound out words like red <laughs> and stop. Like, that, that's to the degree that I didn't know how to read. I faked it up until that point. Junior high school, history class, they would always have us read a paragraph. That was history every day, is to go around the, the classroom and you'd have to read a paragraph, it was an absolute nightmare. I dreaded that period every day because I was that kid in junior high that couldn't get through the paragraph. I'm stumbling through trying to sound out words and then everybody's laughing and that, that was history class every day. The last thing that I would like to do several times a week is read out loud to a large group of people. You know? But what does God do? God uses the weak and the foolish things To to confound confound the wise. He wants to express our glory his glory through through our weaknesses So we're encouraged about god's divine selection We go on into verse 20 Then the multitude came together so that they could not so much as eat bread But when his own people heard about it this they went out to lay hold of him for they said he's out of his mind So you see that kind of fickle behavior in regards to christ. They're flocking to him But also now, Jesus isn't eating food, because he's so busy serving others, and they're saying he's out of his mind. He's not even taking care of his basic needs. In John 4, Jesus told us, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Saying, what really nourishes me is to do the will of the Father. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. These are the big shots. These are the scribes coming from Jerusalem that have clout. And they're coming to criticize Christ. And they're saying, Satan lives inside of you. That's why you're able to cast out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Jesus is king in his bold instruction. As he's being criticized, he's going to give bold instruction to these guys. What I really appreciate about verse 23 is Jesus is not hot-headed. His anger is not out of control. When we're criticized, it's easy to get defensive. And, And Jesus just says, hey, why don't you come sit down? Let's talk about this. He calls them to himself, and he uses wisdom and logic to refute these guys. How can Satan cast out Satan? How can Satan go against himself? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. He's saying, guys, this, this is not possible. I, I can't do this. I mean, if I was from Satan, then I would be dividing Satan's, Satan's kingdom. And he gives these illustrations and he says, a nation divided against itself Will not stand. A house divided against itself will not stand. And this is so true, isn't it? And Satan himself knows this. So, what is the the primary way, one of the primary ways that Satan attacks to divide? What does he want to do to our church? He wants to divide us. Because if he can divide us, then he can conquer. Satan brings great destruction in believers' lives when we're divided with one another, when we're divided against other churches. When we're fighting with another believer, who bleeds? Christ, because we're all from the body of Christ. What's Satan's agenda in our homes if you're married and you have kids? He wants us divided with our spouses. Because if he can get us divided, then he's going to bring great destruction. Get us divided with our kids. If we're fighting against our spouse and our kids, we're fighting the wrong battle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Satan wants to destroy people's lives. How does he do it? He gets nations to be divided against each other. Why all the destruction in the United States? There's no unity. We're divided against each other. Maybe more so than any other time in our history. I was reading in the news this week, Southern Sudan just recently became a country. Just in the last few years, you'd think it'd be an opportunity for them to unite. They're having a civil war. They have 1 million refugees, 1 million people. 1.6 million on top of that are displaced from their homes but haven't left the country and they are brutally killing each other. This tribal hatred that they have for one another. Who do you think is behind that? Satan. He's destroying a whole race of people because of their hatred for one another. So Satan knows this and we need to endeavor to keep unity with one another inside of our homes. It's so very important. Verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. This makes sense, right? If you want to steal from somebody, you first have to bind the the strong man. If someone were going to have to try to rob our house, they'd have to try to bind me, which would be pretty hard for them to do, right? Right? Thankfully, I got the 12-gauge and the shotgun, you know, in the, in the closet. Grew up in Oregon, but of course, that, that's the way it works. So what's Jesus declaring here? Remember, he's speaking to them through stories. He's saying, yeah, we know Satan is strong, but I have bound Satan. And the reason that I have bound him is not because I'm with him, but because I'm greater than him and I have authority over him. Make Make sense? In verse 28, Jesus, still speaking to these guys, speaks to them about the blasphemy of the Spirit. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. They're rejecting Christ and saying that Jesus is demon-possessed, and in doing so, They're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What's the job of the Holy Spirit? Do we know from God's word what the role of the Holy Spirit is? Yes. From John 15 verse 26, it says, The Holy Spirit testifies of me. Jesus speaking. The Holy Spirit testifies of Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit's up to, is always pointing us to to Jesus Christ, even before we knew Christ as our Savior. So when someone says no to Jesus Christ, rejecting who he is and what what he's done, they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I want you to really understand this because wouldn't you say that this is a really important section of scripture? Saying all all sins forgiven. All sin, but except for this one thing, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I want to be very clear on this. I don't want you to leave with confusion. What causes someone to go to hell? It's rejecting the person and the work of Jesus Christ over the course of a lifetime. Can someone... Reject Christ for 15 years and then choose to receive Christ their Savior and be forgiven? Absolutely, because at that point, they've stopped blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Our lives are testimony to that. You probably had a period of time in your life where you said no to who Jesus Christ is, but then you chose to believe. You chose to change your mind about who the Lord is. Please hear this. If you don't know Christ as your Savior and you've been saying no to Christ, maybe you appreciate Christ, you have a respect for Christ, You're saying, no, I don't believe he's God. No, I don't believe he died for my sins. No, I don't need a savior. Be careful, because if you do that over the course of a lifetime, the Bible says it's eternal condemnation. Hell is very real. And each time that you say no to Christ, it makes it that much easier to say no to him the second time, the third time. I remember growing up in a Christian home, thinking, you know what? When I'm old and got a family and kids, then I'll believe in Christ and bring my family to church. But up until that point, I'm going to do whatever I want and have some real fun, right? Thankfully, God got a hold of me. But maybe you're waiting for something. You're like, I just want to be in charge of my life. I want to go do what I want to do. Well, you don't know how much time you have. So it'd be important today to trust Christ. important today to be saved. We end our study this morning With Jesus' brothers and his mother coming to him. Then his brothers and his mother came, standing outside. They sent to him, calling him. First thing that we know from this verse is Mary didn't live in perpetual virginity. So after Christ was born, Mary and Joseph went on to have normal husband and wife relationships. We're all adults here, they had sex, and they had kids. And they they had, their sons are are listed here. We know from the Gospels that the sons did not believe in Christ at this point in in the journey. And they're, they're coming to Jesus. They're calling to him. We don't know the motivation for why they're calling to him. And a multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Hey, your mom's here. Your brothers are here. But he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. This is pretty radical. Jesus stood up his own mom. Mom wanted to see him. Everybody's like, you got to go out and talk to mom. Your your brothers are here. He looks at those, his disciples that are right there around him. He says, Who's my brother? Who's my mother? Who's my sister? Those who do the will of God. This teaches us something very important. And it's this, that closeness comes with Christ through obedience. A lot of times we we cry out, God, I want to be near to you. I want you to be near to me. God, why aren't you near to me? Jesus is saying, do my will and he'll be my brother. Do my will and you'll be my sister. Do my will and you'll be my mother. It's the importance of doing the will of God. He's light. So if we want fellowship with light, we've got to walk in the light. So there's a lot of questions on, well, what is the will of God? Thankfully, God defined it for us. A couple of scriptures where God tells us the will of God. Write them down. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So when I'm being thankful, I'm in the will of God. When I'm being unthankful, I'm outside of the will of God, and it affects my fellowship with God. Oh, it can't be that simple. I wanted God's will to be much more complex. Nope, it's right there. Goes on in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. Write it down, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. This is so complicated, I don't know if we can grasp it. For this is the will of God your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality what's the will of god live a sexually pure life live in sexually in- integrity you're married sex is only inside of your marriage you're not married you're saving sex till you get married sexual purity sexual integrity not getting as close to the line as possible saying well what's sexual immorality you know is this sexual immorality is this sexual immorality is this sexual immorality, is this sexual immorality? Listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and walk in sexual purity. Walk in sexual integrity because in doing so, you're in the will of God. And when you're in the will of God, it brings you into closeness with Jesus Christ. Powerful motivation for living in God's will. So what have we seen in this chapter? Jesus is the king. Powerful proclamation. Stretch forth your hand. How do we apply that this morning? Is there a promise of God's word That God is waiting for us to respond in faith. He's saying, stretch forth your hand. He's saying, I want to do work in your life. I want to use you. But it's us stepping out in faith. And then we see divine selection. God choosing these 12 disciples to encourage us that he's calling us to himself. And he's wanting to use us. Maybe you thought, you know, well, well, God can use other people. But because of this weakness in my life, because of this struggle with sin, of so my background. I've never been able to go to this Bible college or that seminary. Or you, You've got all these reasons why God can't use your life. And then he shows us the disciples and saying, if I can use these knuckleheads, I can use you. If I can turn the world upside down with these 12 guys, I can use your life for my glory. And then we see the bold instruction of Christ as he's confronting those who are criticizing him. As we end this morning, we're going to take communion. There's tables here in the front and there's tables in the back. The worship team's going to come back and, and lead us in worship. Take some time because it's one thing to read about Jesus being the king and it's another to encounter him. The instructions on communion is to stop and remember. Do this in remembrance of me. As you come to grab the elements, go back to your seat and when you're ready, take communion. Reflect on his broken body. Reflect on his shed blood confess sin to him, receive forgiveness, encounter Christ. We're all incredibly busy, and we have this moment to stop and be still in God's presence. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, we talked about the gospel this morning, and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and you were touched to say yes to Jesus Christ. There's going to be a ministry team here on the side. We're going to be over here in the corners, and just come down. Let us know, I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior, but don't continue to say no to Christ. Do you believe that Christ is here? That's the promise that Jesus gives us. Where two or three are gathered in his name, he's in our midst. That he walks amidst his church. So believing that he's here, then let's draw near to him. Let's wait upon him in communion. Would you stand with me and let's pray and we'll celebrate communion together. Jesus, thank you that you are our king. Thank you that we can come and spend time with you remembering your broken body, remembering your shed blood. Thank you that you know us personally, that you're longing to spend time with us. So you may you minister to each and every one of our hearts as we celebrate communion this morning. In Jesus name, amen.